Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. It's Thursday, February 18th, 2010, and welcome to Conversations.net and the Future of Education. Our special guest tonight is Clay Shirky. Clay, thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Really a delight and a pleasure. Uh, Teresa Beth is here, uh, live from Germany, where she's recently engaged. Hooray, Teresa. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again for embarrassing me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always my pleasure. Thanks for being <laughs> up at midnight. Hey, no problem. This Wouldn't is early it. for you, Teresa, isn't it? It is, yeah. Don't need any Red Bull no, tonight, great. do you? No Red Bull tonight. Yeah, Red, the Red Bull did me in good last night. <laughs> Okay, okay. it was great. I got to stay up and watch the, the, the Olympics. I know. Thanks for the Twitter spoiler on the, um, the half pipe there, will you? Oh, come on. <laughs> I, I stayed up until 4 in the morning to watch it. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> Coming up on conversations.net and thefutureofeducation.com. Uh, that is not tonight, is it? Next week, Kevin Johnson and Susan Manning on online education for dummies. That is not tonight. Susan Patrick next week, Scott Rosenberg on Say Everything, Bernard Robin, Total Recall on March 10th, uh, 21st Century Skills on the 17th, Tony Wagner on the Global Achievement Gap on the 25th, Sir Ken Robinson on the 30th, lots more fun coming up. If you've missed the show, do know that all the recorded sessions are at conversations.net and futureofeducation.com, including a really fun session last night with Dan Pink, James Paul G on video games, Tara Hunt, Dan Coyle, lots of fun folks there. I hope you'll go listen to those. There is an iTunes feed on our individual MP3 files if that's how you like to hear them. Futureofeducation.com and Learn Central and Conversations I Met are sponsored by Learn Central. It's the social network for educators that Eliminate provides for free. It pays my salary. So please do come there and check it out. You can use Eliminate for free. Lots of fun. And if this is your first time at Illuminate, I want to encourage you to participate. You can do so by clicking on the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window, smiley face, clapping hand, confused look or thumbs down. You'll see a larger icon, a hand with a green up arrow. That's how you will raise your hand later in the Q&A to let us know you'd like to take the microphone. If you think that you would like to do that, do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is configured correctly. So here's your first chance to participate. Next to the map, you'll see some uh, icons. Look for a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on where you're listening from. We know we're That's international beautiful. tonight because we already have Teresa in Germany. No, that's somebody in. Looks like Peru or. Go for the Galapagos Islands, actually. It does. Feel last free to do a had, shout last out. Night we had Austria, too. I wonder where our India group went. They were quite active for a while. Okay, and some really big star over there in um, the Middle East. Anyway, wherever you're listening from, we're sure That's glad to have you here. Cool. And this is earlier in the day, so thanks for, for tuning in early. Okay, we're going to move forward here. So Clay, my first question, yep. why three covers? <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a publishing relic of two things. One, when you publish 
<coughs> both in the U.S. and the U.K. you get separate covers, and hardback and paperback get separate covers. And it is an article of faith among publishers that changing the cover between the hardback and the paperback uh, is good for sales. Although I don't know whether that's true or how they know. And so it's that's just you know it's it's it is a, a tradition there. And so I I got to look at all of them and you know see what was going on. But I'm not, and I said to them at the time, I'm not the most visual person. And so I, it's it's uh, I really have left it to the designers to figure out what the covers were. There's a fourth cover not on uh, not on this list, which was uh, the original UK hardback cover, which had uh, political style campaign buttons, you know, the kind of buttons you wear on your shirt, which said "Here comes everybody" spelled out, which is which is another one. That looks like John from New Zealand is uh, has that cover. Yes, I, I mean, think that's right. Because the UK gets basically English-speaking rights outside the US and Canada. I, I was I, this was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the third one, the sort of yellow one, that showed up for me as the Kindle cover, and I thought that's interesting. You have a separate cover for the Kindle, but that does that not does that belong to more than just the Kindle? The Kindle cover is also the UK paperback cover. The red, the gotcha. red cover is US paperback, and the looking down on the headshots is the. Uh Hello, I seem to have lost Steve. Yeah, and I lost my audio for some. Okay, yeah, you Catherine in the chat just said hell audio too, as did Leonard. So. I think that was all of us. Looks like we had a hiccup. Yeah. Yeah. So Clay, yeah. yes. the, the, book had, the book was published in 2008. Right. Uh, to me, that seems forever ago. Uh -huh. And the, the discussion about um, the impact of these technologies, does it feel that way to you as well? No, it's interesting. I actually first started working on the proposal for that book in 2005. And uh, I became very conscious as I was sort of first outlining it and then after I started working with, with Penguin Group, my publisher, that I was not going to be able to cover of the moment developments, right? The, and many things were happening as I was writing it, sort of privacy concerns on Facebook and so forth. And I always had to make a judgment about is this a short-term effect or is this a long-term effect? So what I tried to do in the book, not with complete success, but certainly the goal, was to use examples that illuminated effects that I believed would be long-lasting, even if the services or events I was pointing to were not long-lasting. So for instance, uh, I, talked about, uh, I talked about the kids in Belarus who used flash mobs uh, as a way of getting around government strictures for political protest. The Belarusian situation has settled down, but I think a lot of that analysis has turned out to be relevant for what we're seeing with the green uprising in Iran. Um, and it is just, I mean, you know, as I, think you're, as I think you're noting, it is just a difficulty of talking about social uses of technology that the examples, examples change very quickly. Um, and in fact, there's a chapter in the book called Faster and Faster, uh, in which I basically say one of the things we can see happening in the medium as the, the, the device of choice for connectivity moves uh, outwards from the, from the personal computer to increasingly include cell phones uh, with SMS and, and camera capabilities and all the rest of it, is that there are going to be a bunch of new effects that we can't just extrapolate from what we're used to. Uh, what we're used to on the page. 
And looking back, you know, when a book comes out in 2008, the manuscript is basically done in the middle of 2007. Certainly in the two and a half years from then to now, uh, I would say that the largest and most important effects not well captured by the book are exactly those changes. The, the phone becomes uh, the critical device uh, for all kinds of coordination, all kinds of uh, I've lost your audio again. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, am I back? Well, try turning your mic up just a little. There's a slider down in the audio area. <clears throat> just slide it a little right. to the right and see if we get more. I'm going to turn my webcam on because I want to show you my copy of the book. I don't know if you can see the dog ears there, but they're maybe. Oh my goodness! That is a happy. Maybe more happy of them. Than maybe more dog-eared pages than not, and it's sort of the, the notes that I took in the book. So um, it was kind of humbling for me to go back and look at the book now, because I realized how much I've cribbed from you. Oh, uh, good. You're welcome and, to it. <laughs> Uh, are, are you still getting a fair amount of feedback on the book even after two and a half years? Sure. I mean, that, that is one of the things that, that has, has just delighted me is I still see on Twitter or get in mail or just see, you know, in discussions, oh, I've, you know, I've just read this book, whether it's I've just gotten around to reading it or someone just recommended it to me. Uh, it's it's been assigned in some colleges for as as class reading, and because I try to concentrate on some fairly basic effects of social uh, social coordination and social networks, uh, one of the one of the real real delights of having that book out in the world is just hearing from people saying, "Aha! This clarified something I'm looking at in the environment right now." And really, given that books are slow media, that's the only reason you should write a book is if there is some window of relevance after the year in which it's published, and if the book can clarify things uh, that are happening after the pub date. And so I have people saying, oh, I saw this thing happening on Facebook, and it reminded me of something that I'd, that I'd seen, and here comes everybody. And that, right, that, that's just, as an author, that's just pure, pure delight. Um, what's, what's been most exciting to me isn't, just hearing, oh, I, I, you know, I, I saw this and it clarified something, but really hearing people say, oh, I read this and it made me want to do something differently, right? I run a nonprofit, I'm in a school system, I'm in a, you know, I, I work in city government, I've got a startup company, and after reading that, I thought, I can, I can try to harness some of these social effects in ways that I hadn't seen before. And as, as nice as praise for the book is, the real vote of confidence for any, I think, any work of this kind of, this kind of nonfiction is if people see a way that they can take advantage of what they know once they know it. So uh, people who are listening, have, many of them have heard this before, but I have a skin condition called vitiligo. So it's the Michael Jackson skin disorder where you lose uh -huh. the pigment in your skin. And I started a network in the evening hours, I mean really just a couple of hours for people with vitiligo. I did it on Ning. We've used Illuminate to connect. Right. Uh, that part of the story, actually the subtitle of the book, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations, for me has been very tangible. Yep. But, but I actually have wondered, do people get that as the primary message of the book? 
or, or um, because I often feel like I talk about the book and I talk with people and, they, and they're not even really thinking about group formation. They're just more thinking about the effects of social media. Well, there's certainly, in part because press interest in this stuff, I mean, it's interesting, when the book came out, uh, it did fine when it launched in, in 2008. And, and, but most of the sales, uncharacteristically for the first year, most of the sales were the second half of the year because it was really when Obama was clearly using social media uh, to first achieve the, the Democrat nomination and later, later to win the White House, later to take the White House, that people really began talking openly and in earnest at the, at the highest levels about a fairly, a fairly fundamental transformation. I think that shift gave the conversation a kind of utilitarian feel. Uh, how can I use these tools to achieve some goal the way Obama did? And yet, as you say, the effect on most people's lives is really going to be about the networks they participate in. And to use, your, to use this particular example, I think one of the places we're seeing some really remarkable changes that were on the horizon in, in, in 06 and 07, but are really fully visible now, are sites of expert patient communities like Patients Like Me or Cure Together, where the ability of those groups to assemble with people who share uh, particular syndromes is actually changing the way medical science is done. And so it is really direct effects on people who have these conditions, but it's having these kind of upstream effects where patients like me now registers one in ten new diagnoses of ALS of, of, uh, of what's called, often called Lou Gehrig's disease. And they have a panel of so many ALS sufferers that they're actually able to offer researchers contact with people who suffer from very particular internal variations of the progress of ALS, giving the researchers a window on, on uh, the, the progress of the disease and possible cures that they could, could not have gotten, in fact, failed to get in any other way. And I think that over time, people are going to feel the effects in their own lives through those kinds of things. It's, it's easy to read about Facebook and the paper or hear about mybarackobama.com, but I think the, the effects will be brought home to people through the kind of examples you've uh, you've just brought up about yourself. So you have an open source background, and, and you're not going to know this about me, but I actually did an interview series for a couple of years where I interviewed Richard Stallman and Eric uh -huh. Raymond and others about open source software and education. And kind of consistently, it, it, uh, the interviews sort of pointed out that most of what uh, open source folks did was not happening in a traditional educational structure. So if you think about group forming and you think about my ability to start a group on vitiligo or uh, people to start groups on other health or social issues, um, how do we bring that, how should we and how would we bring that into education, that ability to organize that way? So this is, this is a huge open question because, and, and, and it is one that I think is a revolutionary question, the most overused word in the English language, but I mean a very particular thing by it, which is to say, I don't believe that the group forming advantages of these media 
can be realized within the, the education system as it is largely currently structured. Uh, or put another way, it's a tool that will change the user when they take advantage of it. Um, one of the examples I used to illustrate the, the conundrum here is, is the case of Chris Avenir, who was the uh, chemistry student, freshman chemistry student at Ryerson University, who in his first semester there uh, joined and then later became administrator of a Facebook study group for chemistry homework. And one of the faculty members on the chemistry faculty saw this group and arranged to have Ryerson brought up on academic charges, 147 separate academic charges, one for being an administrator of the group, and 146 additional charges for each of his fellow student members uh, who were members of the group. And Avenir's counter to this was essentially, look, we have study groups on the real world campus, not only does the college know about it, they provide a place for it to happen. So it cannot be that there is uh, a kind of fundamental objection to group learning. And yet colleges have been built around these kind of two different messages. On the inside, they say to the students, right, well, the, you know, this is a discursive environment. Conversation is the, is, is the way we advance knowledge. We're going to communicate to you that small seminars are the kind of ideal class to be in. And to the outside world, they promise individual quality control in the, in the form of a diploma. And up until now, those two messages haven't clashed too much because one could be entirely contained within the campus and the other could be broadcast to the outside world. The dilemma in letting students self-assemble and to engage in shared constructive learning, learning where you, you, you proceed by trying to uh, undertake tasks, is that that model is not easily resolvable into a model of identical individual achievement. And the Whatever the advantages of collaborative learning, and they are, they are quite significant. We see this at, at the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU where I teach. We see this every semester, right, the, the, the value of collaboration. The, the, the basic fact of the matter on administrative terms is that it is a profound challenge to the idea that education is print, that, that essentially the product of education or the target of education is a set of individual minds. And wrestling with that problem, taking advantage of collaborative value of the sort that, as you say, we know from open source, uh, is really something that, that will, I think, not just add to, but, but on some level restructure educational theory within the institutions that adopt it. So we're seeing some really interesting things um, uh, happen in this regard, at least within the community of people who uh, I associate with. Uh, one of which is that these uh, tools are providing educators with a daily ability to talk to each other. And, and the last week of mine has been largely centered around this thought of, of um, a grassroots level desire to re design and, and understand what education is by uh, individual educators who are now gathering together. Do, do, does traditional schooling fall into your self-preservation syndrome category? Is there a... 
it, it, it often does for sure. Um, and I think in general the good examples we are seeing of places where there's use of collaborative tools and, and, and these kind of associative networks, you know, like the community of practice you were just talking about, generally stems from a handful of radically minded individuals. We're not yet at the point by and large where institutions are adopting systemic ways of uh, of taking advantage of ridiculously easy group forming. Um, I think about you and McIntosh in, in, in Scotland who wanted to do exactly what you were saying, which is to raise the quality of K-12 education by forming a community of practice. But of course what we know about K-12 education is the day is structured such that uh, most teachers spend time with the students, not with each other. And so he said, well, I will do this using, using these, these social tools. And although he wanted to reach an audience of 1,500 people, uh, he started with an audience of 30 because he thought it's a large enough number to get a conversation going. It's a small enough number that people have a sense of knowing each other. And I can pick the people who will accelerate rather than breaking on the new cultural norms needed for the kind of sharing and collaboration. I think in general when you try to take a whole culture along all at once, that's when the brakes get thrown. And this, I think we're still in a period where we're seeing a lot of overlapping experimentation in special cases, but we don't yet have a good general idea of what an overall positive change in the direction of, of you know, collaborative value is going to look like. And so it is going to be things like groups of educators minded to have these discussions coming together and figuring out the tools as they go uh, that's going to be the source of, of most of the value for the next five years. Okay, so you've reminded me of one of what happened to be the, one of the most memorable quotes of the book. Uh, uh, the comparison with the printing press doesn't suggest we're entering a bright new future. For a hundred years after it started, the printing press broke more things than it fixed, plunging Europe into a period of intellectual and political chaos. So are we seeing that play out? We're certainly seeing it play out in different industries at different times. And plainly, the more an industry relies on tight control of information sharing, right? Famously, the music industry, um, the earlier it, it runs, into these, runs into these issues. Education is interesting because it is socially highly conserved, right? The ability to offer certification that someone has graduated from high school is such a profound social tool that even high schools that absolutely fail to educate their children by any, any measure are not shut down. So once you are in the degree granting business, whether it's a high school diploma or a college degree or what have you, um, it is almost unheard of for those institutions to go away. So to play out the, the, that theory within the educational environment, the places that are, that are where the, the revolution is most uh, is playing out earliest of the places where it's most about information sharing. So at the at the college level, uh, it's clear that the scholarly publishing model in which research is funded by the state and then the state pays more money to buy back the journals in which the research is published uh, is coming under enormous pressure because that is no longer compatible with the goals of the academy as a, as, a, as a distributor of knowledge and as a solicitor of peer review. 
and so the tension between the faculty, the librarians, and the, the scholarly publishers like Reed Elsevier uh, is going to get quite acute in the next five years. The question of education more generally, you know, in, in New York, uh, my friend Katie Salen has started a school, a middle school, that centers around the games curriculum, studying games, game design, building games, you know, both online and offline, or you know, both 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 digital and analog, and 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 really centering in on sort of constructive theories of constructive learning. Five years from now, we will know what parts of that experiment worked and what parts of it didn't. But it's much easier to imagine someone radical coming in from the outside and trying something new than from that kind of curriculum developing spontaneously within a traditional school for the same reason that printing the logical site for printing presses in the 1500s was not in monasteries, even though monasteries held all the previous information about how to make books. It was easier to start from scratch outside the monastery than it was to try and update monastery practice to automated printing. Clay, you, uh, on your website you say, I've always written about whatever interested me at the time. Um, how, what was it about your background that uniquely qualified you to see what was taking place? I, I don't think it was anything about my, my background, much as I'd love to take, take credit for that. Um, I got lucky uh, a couple of different ways. And I think two of the big pieces of luck were that I'd started the, the, in 2001 uh, Red Burns, who's the founder of the, the Interactive Telecommunications Program, where I, I still teach, invited me to come and give a, give, teach a class as an adjunct. And I was here when Friendster hit. Uh, now, I'm married. I have a job, right? I'm, if I'm, uh, in those days, if I was awake at midnight, it was because I was changing one of my kids' diapers. Uh, and so I was too old for Friendster. I was really too old. I didn't, it didn't fill any of the core needs of who should I go out with, you know, where should I go out kind of stuff that, that, that Friendster often did. But I saw my graduate students uh, glomming onto Friendster and using it in ways that were really quite dramatic. Same thing, Flickr launched in that period. And so I was in an environment where the population around me was making manifest the, the, the social changes. And then the second way I got lucky, what I was working on at the time was peer-to-peer -peer, uh, logic. I was working on uh, Napster and SETI at home and sort of figuring out all of these, these related systems. And I had a conversation with Ray Ozzy, who who'd, uh, was at the time running a company called Groove, which was, which was collaboration software, distributed collaboration software. He said to me, the peer-to-peer -peer thing is interesting, but I think the really big effect is going to be on people's social and collaborative relationships, not just on the topology of the networks themselves. And between those two effects, in 2002, I convened a meeting of about 30 people, uh, Ray and Matt Jones and Alice Taylor from the UK, Stuart Butterfield from, from San Francisco, some of my own you know, people in New York, all of whom were thinking about social software in one way or another, people from Corrosion, people from Metafilter, people from Flickr. And we just sat in a room for two days and we talked about the social effects of the Internet. And the conversation wasn't, uh, it wasn't uniformly enlightening. We were all groping in the dark. But getting 30 people together 
over two days with the baseline assumption that this was going to have a big social effect gave me one of those standing on the shoulders of giants moments where I could borrow other people's points of view as well as having to develop my own. And that, that turned out to be tremendously fortuitous because I adopted that assumption, the thing that Ray had told me, as my basic lens, which is whenever anything happened, I asked myself, is this going to change life for individuals or for groups as well? And then I just consistently concentrated on the group effects, in part because we had the rhetoric of personal technology, right, the personal computer and so forth, since the mid-70s and, and, you know, counting the calculator since the mid-60s. And yet, it was clear that the network, the, the addition of the Internet to all of those personal devices made it a social set of tools as well, but that that wasn't yet well understood. So I got, I got, a, little, uh, I got a little accelerant from Ray Ozzy, and I've benefited from it for the last 10 years. When you look back on the book, if you were to rewrite it today, would you change anything? Sure. I mean, goodness. It's, it's um, what would I choose? I think I would leave out uh, some of the later material on network topologies, because as that is, that is not something that I think people experience in their daily lives. And I, you know, one of the things I, I one of the things I benefit from in conversations about the book is I simply figure out which things consistently resonate with people. Uh, so I think that I would have honed it more on people's experience of group joining, as you as you mentioned, and less about uh, less about overall topology. And of course, if I was if if I was not only rewriting it with the benefit of hindsight, but rewriting it in this year, um, I would make much more use of examples in which uh, the omnipresence and mobile access afforded by phones of all sorts uh, is not just accelerating the existing effects, but, but really creating you know, the kinds of effects that we could only just imagine uh, back, when I was, back when I was writing the book originally. I mean, one of the, one of the, the great examples is Yushahidi, uh, the, the Kenyan service. It was originally developed in Kenya after the, uh, after the election, the, the election of 2007, where ethnic violence broke out, and, and, and Oriakola, one of the, uh, a, 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 you know, member in good standing of the Kenyan blogosphere said, we need some way to track these reports of violence. And within a couple of days, she and a group of, uh, group of technologists had, had put together a system for taking SMS-based reports of violence in Kenya and, and putting it on a map as a Google mashup. And that service is now being used in Haiti. Uh, to gather reports of, you know, both presence of supplies, need for supplies, uh, as as a coordinating tool, and it relies absolutely on the idea that phones are omnipresent and that SMS is enough. You don't need an iPhone to participate in this stuff. You can send a text message. You can tie yourself into this. Uh, similarly, the book mentions Twitter, which which had appeared on the scene, was certainly certainly active enough. But many of the events in, t in which Twitter has turned out to become a kind of critical tool for raising awareness uh, happened after 
after the book was published. In fact, I, I put some of that in when I was talking about the Chinese earthquake uh, in the afterword of the paperback. But but even since even since I was writing that, uh, Twitter's importance has, has has obviously grown considerably, both as a standalone service, but also as an illustration of the power of rapid, uh, low bandwidth, high social valence connectivity. I'm trying to remember clearly exactly how you expressed it, but uh, you, I remember you talking about the fact that when email became ubiquitous, uh, that allowed for all kinds of other things to happen. Is the same thing happening now with SMS and maybe even social networking? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and there's two different effects there. Uh, one is the difference between the, the sort of steps of, I know some people who use it, a lot of people use it, most of the people I know use it. All of those steps require some calculation about whether or not I can take it for granted that I can use a particular tool to communicate with a particular group. Uh, now, for a lot of these tools, we are at a threshold where, particularly for young people, you can automatically assume in most cases that you know, if you're if you're on a college campus, pretty much everybody you're dealing with can send and receive SMS, uh, and can probably send and receive photos uh, from their from their mobile phone. So some of it is that ubiquity isn't just having having everybody connected to a service isn't just 10% better or 20% better than having 80% of the people connected to a service. It's in fact a different kind of thing because you 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 don't require any mental energy any longer uh, to calculate whether or not a particular tool will be good for a particular job. The second effect, which isn't about networks in the world, but is rather a mental shift, is that these tools don't get socially interesting until they get technologically boring. Right? It's not the moment where everybody thinks, oh, I have this shiny, cool new Twitter thing, and I'm going to tell people I was eating tasty arugula for lunch or whatever. It's really the moment when, without thinking about it, someone tweets, oh my god, there's an earthquake. Right? And that, that kind of reflexive use of a service you take for granted is the place where the real, the real social effects begin to accelerate. Uh, one, of the, one of the constant lessons in, in the educational context, one of the constant lessons about technology and business is that it is almost always the line employees rather than the CIO who brings new technologies, new networking technologies into a company. And if you went around in 1998 interviewing CIOs, as I think Gartner did, asking them, do you use instant messaging today or when do you plan to use instant messaging? A majority of the, the CIOs interviewed said, we don't use it. Uh, we don't have any plans to use it. If we do end up using it, it won't be for another three to five years. Then if you went to the salespeople in the same organizations and said, hey, what's your IM handle? They would give it to you immediately because, of course, they were using IM because their clients demanded it. So my guess is that uh, for, for a lot of these things, the variability of when a tool becomes boring it's really going to be person by person, classroom by classroom, institution by institution. And you'll have one set of educators who, who not just take this stuff for granted, but have gotten bored with it and are therefore able to use its effects well, uh, while you'll have another set of educators for whom the idea of a computer in the classroom is still kind of an astonishing, uh, still a kind of astonishing change. Um, 
to your earlier quote about you know Gutenberg and 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 the subsequent intellectual upheavals before things settled down again, I think that in a way is the source of many of the upheavals, which is just the background assumptions of people around these kinds of tools are going to vary so much that there will be some group in the vanguard, there will be some mainstream, and there will be some group in the rearguard, and they are just going to fight like cats and dogs for the next 15 years. So Clay, I kind of watched. Um, Yesterday, I think you responded to Buzz. Did you turn Buzz off? I did turn Buzz off. Okay. So, talk to talk to us about filtering. Talk to us about uh, you know. Thank what, you. What, I was just going to ask you that. I was that's on the list. Because <laughs> one of the things I read, David uh, Warlick posted the other day. Uh, all I can say is too many channels. So why did you turn Buzz off? And was it a Filtering issue, or 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 where are we going when all of a the sudden there's there just are so many channels? It was it was absolutely a filtering issue. Um, one of the things we know about channels, and there's a there's a beautiful paper called SMSs to say I love you, um, which is, looks at people who deal with multi-channel juggling, right? So they've got email, phone calls, SMS, uh, instant messaging. And one of the things that happens is that certain channels of communication start to get uh, start to get taken over or separated based on certain kinds of utility. Uh, so remember the milk and can you review this can you review this document are two kinds of messages that could go through any number of channels, right? But I'm going to develop a kind of implicit mental model for which channels they go in. Now, the the theory that 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 research points to is that at some point you can only add a new channel provides a significant delta over what you've all got. Uh, and one of the you know people have been talking about replacing email as a business collaboration tool for just about as long as email has been used as a business collaboration tool. And everyone can make a long list of the ways in which email is unsatisfactory. And yet, when you add a new collaboration tool, that actually makes the cognitive overhead worse. It's not until you add a new collaboration tool and you get to turn off email, which is which day is far from today, uh, that you can actually say you've achieved that goal. So what what the problem for me with Buzz was twofold, and I think if I'd only had either of the problems I had, I might have left it on because it certainly does do some interesting things. But I had both of them, and it just made for a crappy user experience. The first is I'm not at all clear what the presentation model is. With Twitter, it is absolutely reverse chronological order. Right? I get in and I see a list of tweets. Uh, I can scroll down or not. I can read or not. I can filter a column. I'm using TweetDeck as my service, but most services offer sort of similar similar functionality. But I know exactly what's going on, and I have a mental model for: Does it matter that I missed anything? No. Uh, email is very different, which is to say it's reverse chronological, but it's also because it's asynchronous and and stored in the environment it's stored in. If if Red Burns, if the head of the department mails me something and I don't happen to be online at the time, it's a real problem if I don't see it. Unlike Twitter, so those the email Twitter distinction is a very clear distinction of what I expect from those two services. 
buzz was a mix of kind of aggregation and popularity. So there was recent activity, there was uh, there was commented on activity, and over and over again I had the experience of stuff at the top of the screen when I logged in was stuff I'd seen at the top of the screen the last. And I didn't want to see it again, but I also didn't want to mute it. I didn't want to say go away forever. What I wanted was, I've seen this, only show it to me when something new. So there were just very few user controls for me doing what I wanted to do. And the second problem with Buzz is that because they, they want to take over so much of the existing social space, they want to show me Twitter, they want to show me Flickr and so forth. They were actually trying to act as a replacement for Twitter. Anybody I was following, which you know, follow choices I mostly didn't make, Google mostly made them for me. Uh, even if I'd seen their Twitter, uh, even if I'd seen their tweets on TweetDeck an hour before, Google was showing them to me as well. So what I wanted to be able to say was, only show me things people have tweeted if there's additional commentary. Right. So. So Google's, Google's model of what I should be doing with Buzz is I should be turning off all these other services and just consuming all this content through Buzz, which I would, you know, I mean, I would never do one step. I can imagine a world in which over three or five years' time something like Buzz becomes so useful that I do that, but I have to be able to get there incrementally. And Buzz offered no incrementalism. It was either this big sloppy, partly popularity-driven, partly time-driven mess of stuff I'd seen and stuff I hadn't seen. And it offered me almost no way to customize my own experience. So I wasn't freaked out about the privacy stuff. I wasn't freaked out about the opt-in or the opt-out stuff the way other people were. I mean, it, it, those things were problems, but that's not why I turned it off. I turned it off because it didn't provide me enough of a delta with the, enough of a sort of positive improvement over the other, the other ways I already tracked the network. It was intriguing for me because uh, it did two things for me. One was I felt like the mountain bike enthusiast who built his own bike, and then Google comes and presents this perfectly manufactured bike. And you know, it's really not that interesting to me because I liked the other one that was imperfect and we were all part of figuring out. And somehow, having both of them actually gave me permission to kind of ignore Twitter more than I had before. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the, I mean, and the mountain bike, the mountain bike observation is interesting too, because as as Eric von Hippel has often noticed, you know, it is the lead users who often provide the innovative, uh, the innovative models. And I think Google, in ways that I don't quite understand, because they've not really launched other products this way, don't seem to have seeded it with a small enough population of active users to see what patterns people were really adopting. And as a result, when they launched, I mean, they simply couldn't make the network customizable in the manner of your kind of personally built bike fast enough to keep people from turning it off. I left it on for a week. I lasted longer than a lot of people who I've seen turn it off because I had some interesting conversations on it and I thought something was there. And right, you know, Google, no slouches in the thinking department. I thought, well, we'll see what's, what's going on here. But ultimately, the, I mean, it was really, it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was a moment where I logged in and I think I saw that I had, 50 or 60 buzz, you know, unread buzz messages in my little buzz bar over by Gmail. 
And I got a little sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach, and I thought, you know, I don't need another service to make me feel bad that I'm not uh, that I'm not keeping track of things. And that was really the moment where I turned it off because they just just hadn't figured out that for users building things the way they want them built, building your 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 kind of custom mountain bike, as it were often beats having the defaults that a bunch of designers have thought really hard about if the experience is meant to both be and feel personal. So we've got a couple of minutes before we'll start taking Q&A. And um, if you have a question for Clay and you'd like to raise your hand, do go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard so you make sure your microphone's working, but then you'll be able to raise your hand and ask a question. Teresa, I'm sure you're gathering questions like crazy there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Clay, final question from me. Um, I often think about sort of the cultural changes that came about from television. And I, I, if, you, if you look at uh, television as a part of our daily lives, and not me in particular or you, but just sort of uh, in general, right. it feels like we haven't actually done a very good job of balancing our lives. You know, that we probably spend way more time with the television on than we do outside. And we're yep. afraid to let our oh, kids yeah. out. So are, are, uh, are we sort of in the same danger? Is this just the part of the human uh, situation that we have trouble putting things into proper balance and perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, and, and, and this is, you know, one of the famous microcosmic patterns of this is, you know, back when I started using the net and there was no web or graphic user or anything, the problem was mailing lists. Right? People would join the network and they would look at mailing lists or they would look at Usenet News, the, the, the global bulletin board system, and they would subscribe to all these mailing lists and all these news groups. And it was only later that they would realize, I can't actually read all this traffic. And it is the sad moment where you realize that access to more information doesn't mean you'll finally get to track everything you're interested in. It really means you have to be more consciously choosy about what it is you get involved in. So we're plainly in a period of kind of infatuation where uh, we're, you know, all kinds of things are being tried. Some of them are going to stick. Some of them are going to fall by the wayside. I'm not so worried about that I, because I've never been able to find in history a media revolution that didn't have that pattern, which is most experiments fail, but the experiments are how you figure out what sticks. The part that worries me much more is this. Uh, right now, we have a world where people can aggregate the free time that, frankly, mostly used to go to watching television uh, and create benefit for others. Some of that benefit is, you know, lolcats, right? You come on to Icon has cheeseburger and there's funny pictures and you can laugh for five minutes during your coffee break or whatever. And some of that benefit is patients like me, where people getting together and sharing their healthcare data potentially makes the healthcare system work better for everybody. And both of those effects are enabled by the internet. But the lolcats thing we basically get for free, right? There's no scenario in which people don't find ways to amuse one another. Patients like me scenario, on the other hand, requires a real commitment to civic value. Now, television didn't open up any channels that kind of joint or shared commitment or effort does. The question we face that we, we 
how much of this value is going to be personal and communal, right? Just us cracking each other up and creating stuff that we like. All of which is all of which is fun and interesting. Doesn't create a positive social transfer that a patient like me or you know the creative open source software or what have you is targeting. So what I wonder is uh, Steve Steve Weber. You mentioned open source earlier. Steve Weber, the the political scientist up at Berkeley, has written what I consider to be the best book on open source called The Success of Open Source. So what Weber says is even all of the kind of communicative advantages of uh, the internet and all of the various ways that open source software works well as a technical effort. Why open source software has worked the way it does without talking about the ethical values of the programmers. Right? Open source projects succeed in part because there is a core of people who don't just believe this is an effective way to code, but that this, the, this is an ethically valuable way to code. And the big question I have for us as a society is, what are the ethical norms allows something like patients like me to arise or pick up pal the you know the the ride sharing service these various attempts to be more environmentally conscious to conserve energy to to improve healthcare all of the various efforts ethical values needed to get groups of people to and can we get better at nurturing and supporting those ethical values than we currently are? Because I think I think it is that question, and not either the technological question or the desire of people to socialize with one another, that's really going to affect the long-term social uh, value we get out of the network as a whole. So, Clay, I think your mic volume must have slipped down again because you you uh, were going in and out just a little there at the Sorry, end. Sorry. Okay. No, I will. that's okay. So, uh, if you have a question for Clay, you can put it in the chat, or you can use the green the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand, and we'll give you the microphone. Um, Teresa, have you gathered any you'd like to start us with? No, I'm not getting Teresa's audio. Yeah, um well actually I had are you are you hearing me? Yeah, hearing you. Yep. Okay. Actually I had my own um questions and um just my own comment. It's it's been really interesting for me. I, I read your book at the beginning of the year, uh well I guess the beginning of last year, and I spent five years living in Europe mm -hmm. and then moved back to the US for this for this past year. And I've, you know, consequently I've gone back and forth because my boyfriend slash now fiance lives here. And it's been fun, it's been such an experience to uh, experience culturally, you know, um, how the technology is changing myself, me, and then the people here. Just right. whether I mean I've been traveling to different countries and um, the adoption rate. So my my first question is, uh, do you see like a change in adoption happening slower, or faster, and in different markets? I mean, for instance, you've got Asia. They're they're all about mobile, and they've been that way for years. Mm -hmm. But um, socially sharing, it's it's still not mainstream here in Europe. I mean, I sat in a bar four months ago and had a question, and I, I went to go get my BlackBerry to look it up, and thought, oh, I don't have access, and nobody at the table had access to the internet. And it's just I recognize that I, I'm so accustomed to using it. Right. Right. I look things up as my second little. My it is my smartphone. I'm. It makes me smarter. I look things up. Right, right. So yeah, I, mean, I, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, go ahead. You, you, you were saying you think what's that? Well, I, I'm just curious. You know, when is it? Is it? Are we waiting for that mass adoption? 
you know, um, I think it was uh, John Seeley Brown, I read a paper like 10 years ago about electricity and how it took 30 years for it to become this phenomenon that everybody was integrating electricity right. in right. their lives. Right. Right. So is this something that we're, we're still on the, you know, this is, uh, we're in puberty with the internet and, well, and it, yeah, it, I mean, it, it really depends. It really depends on what your what your frame of reference is, because there are so many uh, issues. There's demographic issues. There's social issues. There's economic issues. There's there's government model issues. Um, we are, I mean, to to Celia Brown's point about rural electrification, we are 40 years into the internet as of as of last October, uh, and the growth curve has been remarkably steady, right? It's, it's the standard kind of what's called the logistic curve, which is a long flat plane, and then it sort of turns through this elbow into an almost geometric growth, and then it begins to slow down into something that's more like logarithmic growth. We're in the logarithmic phase, but still growing rapidly, just not doubling every, uh, just not doubling every, uh, every, every year or two. Uh, the, it's, it's fairly clear that there is a segment of society for whom, because the internet was not normal while they were younger than 35, right, the famous Douglas Adams cutoff, uh, it will always feel a little odd. Um, I'm sure that, you know, connectivity will come largely to that group, but the, the people who've grown up with the internet as normal, right, the, the difference between the way 18-year-olds use it and 58-year-olds use it is going to be with us for, for you know, for the foreseeable future, for as long as those two generations are, are, are cohabiting. Then there's the question of government stimulus, right? Uh, the, when you look at Korea, right, Korea, the most, the most, you know, wired and unwired place on earth is Seoul. It's just, it's just astonishing, the connectivity there. Uh, but there are enormous uh, civic forces within the government making that wiring happen. And it, 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 it has happened as if they're building highways, right? They treat it as civic infrastructure rather than as a series of, of competitive commercial services. Then you have uh, mobile phone growth in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, which is, which is going on at an absolutely torrid pace. They are famously leapfrogging fixed-line fixed line telephony uh, generally and have just astonishing growth. And, and even on a very low base, the compound average growth rate in, in, in you know, Ghana, for example, uh, has, has pushed them from uh, being a country where cell phone is an incredible rarity to to to, to where it's, it's a normal part of it's a normal part of life. So oh yeah, I had I had cell phone in South Africa in 2001, and I thought it was the craziest thing. Right, right, and, <laughs> and now big right. cell phone, and people didn't have running water. Right, and now you can't, and now in you can't in, in in certain parts of right in certain certain parts of the world now you can't get by without a cell phone. So the lumpiness of the deployment because the number of factors involved, the lumpiness of the deployment is always going to be there, uh, or it always is going to be there for the next, say, 10 years. Um, some places will get internet faster, some places will get it slower, some places will get broadband faster and slower, mobile faster and slower, and so on. Um, what's interesting to me, though, there was, there was an enormous amount of, of, of concern in the 90s about the digital divide. And in those days, the question of the divide was framed as essentially there is, there is a small connected elite and then there's the rest of the world and what are we going to do about the, the rest of the country in the U.S. context? What are we going to do about the rest of the country? Uh, what had happened by the beginning of this decade is that, is that the question had flipped 
and a majority of U.S. citizens were connected somehow, and it instead became uh, a question about reaching certain populations, reaching the poor, uh, reaching inner city urban dwellers, reaching uh, rural populations, what have you. And so it was, it was the moment where the majority case flipped uh, that that conversation changed. The divide that I'm interested in and worried about now isn't so much the digital divide because the you know the various forces that are that are driving connectivity have, have been doing it at a fairly fairly rapid pace. The divide I'm worried about is the participation divide, which is to say uh, that being able to participate in these kinds of groups that create value for everybody comes with getting hold of the technology. But sensing that you have the kind of social permission to do so and feel comfortable to do so, that's not a technological choice. That's really about uh, that's really about both personal bias and also whether society makes you feel comfortable as a participating member or not. So Esther Hargitay, who does research on the subject at Northwestern, says the, the thing that correlates most strongly with participation in social networks right now is the educational attainment of the parents. And so that may be a divide that we need to worry about uh, on top of just questions of when people get access to the network in general. Uh, the next question is how do we give people uh, whatever their, their other station in life, how do we give people a sense of participation? How do we improve their ability to use the tools in the ways that create social value uh, given, given, the kind of, uh, given the kind of environment we live in today? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's pretty clearly one of the questions that relates to this issue of how much value are we going to get as a society, as a society out of having widespread access to these tools. So in addition, in addition to um, creating the abilities, how do you see the, um, I mean, I think everybody's got this problem that's, def that's every day intrinsically involved in a social network or the social net with, um, you've got social collaboration, but how do we cut out the noise? You know, how do we find what's relevant? Um, if you've got right. 200 per people participating, how are you, Signaling, you know, where do you find the signal of noise and what's what's important? This is now this that more is, people are adopting it on another level. Right. This is this is the problem of the age, and as as I've said elsewhere, there's no such thing as information overload. There's only filter failure. Uh, we've had information overload as a normal case of membership in the modern world uh, since, depending on where you're looking, the 1500s and the 1700s. Right. Since since the since since a lit ever since when a literate person had access to more books than they could read in a lifetime, there has always been an information filtering problem. So that's just n none of us have ever grown up in an environment that didn't have potential information overload. What makes today different isn't, oh my god, there's so much information. There's always been too much information. What makes today different is that the filters optimized for professional production break under the weight of amateur flows. And so all of the old professional models for sorting and vetting quality and finding your way to relevant stuff and all of that, all of those are broken now. And the stuff that's working in its place tends to be either algorithmic, as with Google's PageRank, or uh, relies on uh, uh, sort of an aggregated view of a participating community, as with rating and ranking systems. 
one of the interesting things that's happening, particularly the collaboration, is that while the net is great for increasing the um, the the tightness of communication in small scale collaborations, right? If you're a group of five open source developers spread out all over the world, the internet you've got access to right now is just paradise. For large scale collaborations, things like Wikipedia or very large open source efforts like Linux, the the effect is reversed, which is to say, you want to reduce the amount that people have to work together. And so it becomes a matter of figuring out how people can work in parallel without needing to be tightly coordinated. Right? When you look at Wikipedia, most of the people editing a Wikipedia article contribute one edit once ever. So those people aren't members of a community or collaborating in any way. They're just adding their bit to the pile and then other people are integrating it. So there is, there is no, not only is there no one-size-fits-all solution for the information filtering problem, it's a different problem at different scales. Small-scale collaborative groups always want everybody to be connected to everybody because that's what gives those groups their, their value up to about you know, five, six, maybe seven people. Once you get past that, what you really want to know is what information can I successfully ignore? And part of this is tools for helping us ignore information, right? Search engines are famously the greatest information excluders in the history of the world because that's what they, they, they do so beautifully. But part of it is also a mental model that gives up on the idea that you can ever have read or participated in or paid attention to everything that's important. And this is back to, back to the, uh, the education question. This is one of the big challenges for academics, right? The value of having disciplinary subdivisions between psychology and sociology and anthropology so that a graduate student can know what literature they have to have mastered before it's time to, to defend. If all of a sudden, even with those disciplines, amount of potential literature that everyone has access to is still, it might as well be infinite for all that you could read it in a lot. Old disciplinary boundaries have to give way to alternate method of filtering. And that's, I think, one of the really radical changes. The information filtering problem is not just, oh, I have a smart agent that tells me which email is most important. It really gets down to things like, what really is the difference between anthropology because if those things have primarily existed as ways of keeping separate literary traditions, keeping them separate, then a network in which everybody has access to everything all the time is bad news for those disciplinary boundaries. And, and some new response that still filters the information but, but, but doesn't rely on the disciplinary boundaries is going to have to be put in its place. Clay, we're at the top of the hour. I'm going to clap for you. I'm using a little clapping hand here. Good. Uh, really, really appreciate your coming on. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. You, you need to know that uh, you've made a substantive contribution to a lot of conversations in the education world, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we typically have a post-show chat, but you are your your moment is done. You're welcome to just close out and go. Um, one and final quick question, is there another book in the works? There is another book in the works, and it is related to the question you raised about television, uh, which is, the, so the working title of the book is Cognitive Surplus, and the idea is what happens when we're able to 
our our free time aggregate resource rather than as a series of uh, you know individual collections of free time that have to be burned off. What happens when we treat this as an aggregate resource? And what can we say about stuff that in the 20th century looks like work? Love of the thing rather than because it's their job or because they're being that is that uh, intersection of the available aggregate time and the Clay, we're losing your channel. <laughs> Sorry, and the motivation to participate in 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 projects that have uh, that that are driven by intrinsic motivations. So it'll hopefully be out sometime this year. Keep your fingers crossed. That is really fun. Hey, you're a prince. Well, I want to ask one last question, if I can. I just want to speak in the question. Um, is there anything? Uh, is there anybody particular that you're reading or that you're following? You mentioned a couple people today, but is there anybody weekly or every day that you're interested? You know, I mean, goodness, um, uh, I, I spend a lot of time on Crooked Timber, which is an interesting social software site. I've just read uh, Barabasi's upcoming book uh, called Bursts. Barabasi was one of the people who really put uh, rigorous, uh, rigorous analysis behind social networks as a spatial phenomenon, as a kind of a topological phenomenon, who's connected to whom. Uh, his new book, Bursts, does that same analysis, but now for time and analyzes the fact that our communications with one another doesn't tend to be either random or steady but bursty. You'll spend, you know, you'll have five or six emails back and forth with someone in the space of three weeks and then not talk to them again for three months. Or you'll tweet back and forth with someone and then and then you know it will it will lie dormant. And he goes through some of the ramifications of the burstiness of uh, of the environment. And then I just uh, read on the recommendation of a friend, but it's just spectacular. Uh, uh, Dave Hickey, the uh, the art historian, um, two essays in particular, "Romancing the Looky Loos" and uh, "The Heresy of the Zone Defense," which are really about uh, the difference between kind of authentic participation and just phoning it in in all kinds of environments, music, sports, art, and so forth. Both of them, I mean, Hickey's a great writer in general, but those two, in particular, those two essays are just are just rocking my world right now. Awesome. Thank you. Good. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Clay. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Sure appreciate your being here. You can consider yourself relieved of duty. And then he's gone. So if anybody would like to stay on for a little post-show chat, you're certainly welcome to do so. We've got about 15 minutes. Uh, I looked up bursts in it. Uh, I'll, put the, I'll put the Amazon link into the chat. Thanks for coming, everyone. Clay's mic went in and out for me, especially there towards the end. I don't know if you were able to hear the ending, but I had trouble with that. Recordings will be up tonight. Yeah, I think he, it sounded like maybe he had a little bit of an echo canceling mic and um, that it was going out. So John asked what has been his impact. I, um, I would say that at least among the educational bloggers and social media folks that I spend time with, almost all of us have read his book. Now that's kind of a blanket statement. Anybody else want to comment on that? I think that Clay has a very unique ability to see these 
um, to see these changes and to uh, oftentimes his, uh, I remember reading Here Comes Everybody the first time and um, feeling like it, it, it really bend, it was mind bending. It changed my perspective on a lot of things. So somehow he has a unique ability to look at these through a different lens or filter and uh, it bring me to a different understanding of what's taking place. There's <laughs> some different comments there. Anyway, that is good news actually that he's working on a book that should be fun. Uh, again, whether you agree or not, challenging. Does the notion, John says, does the notion that education is a process of refining our filtering abilities make sense? Did he say that? So the, uh, if you go to futureofeducation.com or conversations.net, the recording will be up uh, tonight or tomorrow. I'm intrigued that you know you got together for a couple of days with some people and just talked about what was going on. Uh, it sounds very reminiscent of some of the EduBloggerCon kinds of things we've done. I will say that the uh, keynote address that I'm often asked to give very much parallels Clay's material um, and that what, what I feel like I end up doing is just providing some perspective on where our culture and society seem to be going and then asking how, you know, how does this redefine what we think about education. Okay, well, it seems like we're maybe done. I'm going to turn the recording off.